So, Katie, if you had the chance to actually go and live on the moon, would you? Yes. That was a very definitive yes, because of course it's very different from being on the space station. It's still going to the place that's at the edge of where we're trying to go and bringing, you know, what you can bring to it as a person, trying to help everybody else on the team bring what they bring. It's about exploring and being part of that. I'd go any of these places. You're an explorer at heart, clearly. <laughs> and of course, I, I'm asking because not only does it sort of set up today's fantastic podcast episode, but of course it allows us to talk a little bit more about Artemis, which I believe has been pushed back even further. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it pushed back. <laughs> it is definitely the news of news of the week in that, you know, there is just a terrible hurricane that hit Florida. And that has a lot of different ramifications. And they need about 10 days to take Artemis from the vehicle assembly building out to the pad mm. and get it ready, which would put them just at the end of their window in October. They just have a few days of it. So it really made sense to take basically an extra two weeks and make sure that, you know, give people the time they need to take care of their families and, you know, extended relatives in Florida and just everybody be on track. And plus, these people have been pushing for a long time. They've of course, been working really I, hard. No. I guess just a few more days, a few more weeks, actually isn't that much in the long scheme of things. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking, what will we do on the moon? So Katie, now that we know that you want to go back to the moon, what will you do there? You're living in your little moon hut. You're living your <laughs> well, little moon life. <laughs> I mean, there's, <laughs> there, and actually, you know, we do some practicing of those things. We meaning, you know, people everywhere. There's people who live in remote, you know, environments that are actually good analogs for going to the moon. But then when we're actually on the moon, I mean, we're going to be doing all sorts of science to understand right. this place that we have not been nearly, spent nearly enough time. And isn't that incredible to think of that we've done science in space, we actually haven't done pretty much any science on the moon. Totally different environment. Well, I'm going to I'm going to you know, <laughs> grab you back, mostly because um, I did, when I worked at the Johnson Space Center, I did get to see the moon rock collection. Okay, yes. And so we've, we've studied moon rocks, yes. Well, but, but what's and I think really, dust. yeah, but, but it's, what's really important is that like that studying isn't done. And we collected those things 50 years ago. And yet right. we find out more about the solar system and go, I would take another look at those moon rocks. I mean, because now they mean something different. Now we're going to the moon. We're thinking about how can we use the moon as a jumping off point, perhaps right. making fuel from lunar soil, making stuff. So now we're looking at those moon rocks. Boy, people want to grind them up, right? Right, <laughs> and right. Figure out how to make stuff from them. Right. It sounds like we're already beginning to obsess a little bit about the science here, but we should actually get to our other obsessions. So, Katie, what are you obsessed about this week beyond living on the moon and moon science? I've been thinking a lot since our space debris episode. And the night sky is always fascinating to me. And I really hope that people who listen to us are taking the time to look out and see if they see anything moving that kind of shouldn't be. Because there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff up there. Mm -hmm. And and it's, I mean, and to me, it's very meaningful. You know, I'll look at spot the station, put in my zip code. 
and know when the space station is coming over. And right. to me, it's really meaningful to look at that and know that there's people on board and they're circling the Earth. I, I love that connection, actually. But I, I must confess, I, so one of the big controversies at the moment is obviously satellite um, pollution, if you like, light pollution. So with all the Starlink satellites, the number of astronomers complaining that they see these white streaks across the, the sky. I actually love it. I, I get this real buzz when I look up and occasionally you can see a satellite sort of crossing the sky. And I think that's incredible that we're actually seeing something in that night sky that not only we made, but we sent up there. It's doing stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I'm probably going to get lots of angry letters now or emails, um, but I actually get really excited to see us in space. <laughs> Well, and I think about everything that the satellites in space do for us. And so there has to be a balance. I mean, you know, there's a woman who's on the board with me who lives in a village in Alaska. And their Starlink satellite means everything to them in terms of communication. And at the same time, I, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I'm with those astronomers. I want to see my universe. (laughs) So, you know, there has to be a balance. And I think that's what we're about this week is understanding how are we going to do that? as we go forward, establish yeah. that balance. Okay, just just out with it. What are you obsessed <laughs> about this week? So, Well, actually, it, it, it fits in quite well with this discussion. So I've actually been obsessing a little bit about the jobs of the future, but in a very specific way. So I guess that a, a number of our listeners will know that we've just had the second Tesla A i day with elon musk doing his stuff on stage talking about all the amazing things that the tesla is doing and the big show opener this year was the tesla bot this this autonomous robot that tesla are creating and i'm fascinated with this and there was a lot of sort of down a press about this with people saying this is pointless it's been done before no big deal i actually think it's a huge deal what they've done and the thing that intrigues me is is both Elon Musk having this vision of these robots being the workforce of the future. So he's thinking about completely transforming society with this technology, which is both exciting and scary. But the other thing that really gets me is who is going to ask the hard questions about how we do this responsibly? And this is where it ties back to talking about Starlink and sort of the the good versus the bad of technology. And it really worries me that we're going at a million miles an hour with these technologies. And we need somebody to say, hold on a minute, what are going to be the impacts on society of creating autonomous robots, of taking jobs away from people, of manufacturing without people in the loop? Um, And what really gets me with this, and this is where it comes to the jobs of the future in a really weird way, is we desperately need a new type of person who can be part of companies, part of industries that says, you want to do this, this is the ethical and socially responsible way of doing it. Um, and of course, this is actually what we do. We, we teach our undergraduates to do this. We have this Future of Innovation in Society program where we are one of the pretty much only degrees that gives this skill set to our students. But we can't serve the whole world. So how are we going to scale up? How are we going to make sure that there are jobs in the future for people that can tell us how to use technology in socially responsible and beneficial ways? That's what I've been obsessing about. Well, that's quite an obsession. <laughs> it is. I know. And, I mean, my 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 thought is. I mean, it's it's us. I don't mean you and I, but I mean, I think there's different ways to do it, and and establishing a need and a cry for it. I think you're right. Yes, I think this is probably something we're going to come back to, and at some point, I'm going to ask you: Have you put your order in yet for your Tesla bot? Not today, though. <laughs> 
But we should get on to the big question, which is, you know, the kinds of things we've been asking, Andrew. What about when we go to the moon? What will happen there? The last time humans walked on the moon was in 1972, and that was Apollo 17, a half a century ago. So much has happened since then, and now we are finally going back. NASA and other space agencies are planning a series of missions collectively called the Artemis program to get humans back to the moon within the decade. This fall, NASA is launching Artemis 1, which will send the Orion spacecraft into orbit around the moon before it returns to Earth. The second Artemis mission will also orbit the moon, but this time with a crew on board. And for the third mission, NASA has committed to landing the first woman and the first person of color on the surface of the moon. But what is the plan after that? What will we be doing on the moon and why are we even going? These are hard questions. I mean, not just about technology and engineering, but about purpose and cooperation. To get answers, we spoke with Chris Hadfield. Chris is the board chair for the Open Lunar Foundation, an organization that works on policy to support sustainable development on the moon. Chris is actively engaged in catalyzing discussion around these topics on the international stage. He's also a decorated astronaut, engineer, and test pilot. He's flown three space missions and was commander of the International Space Station. And on top of that, he is also the author of three best-selling books, including a new thriller, which I found scary, <laughs> called The Apollo Murders. Well, hopefully that's going to be some way out. And we're actually going to see cooperation and collaboration rather than murders for the next several years on the moon. Chris Hatfield, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be joining you and Andrew here. Well, and I have to disclose that uh, Chris and I have actually known each other a really long time. We both showed up for work on the very same day about 30 years ago at NASA as new astronauts. And you're still talking to each other. Yeah, that's right. And occasionally playing music with each other. But yeah, hard hard to believe that that's been 30 years. But that was a great day, uh, walking into the Johnson Space Center for the very first time and thinking about all the things that were going to happen. But I'm happy to be joining you and talking about some of that stuff today. I have no idea where this conversation is going to go, but we're going to start off talking about the moon. Um, and I just about old enough to remember the the first moon landing. Um, and of course, a lot's happened um, since then. But it's what, 50 years ago, 1972, since humans last walked on the moon? But we're actually going back now. Um, so the Artemis program is bringing us back there with the promise that we'll actually see the first woman and the first person of color walk on the moon. This, I, to me, is really exciting. But for our listeners, I need to ask, why the moon and why now? Um, I think every uh, mission of exploration and discovery has always had a small subset of the population that says, well, why are we doing that? We're already here. You know, why would we ever leave Africa 70,000 years ago? But there's always a subset of the population that's like, hey, I'm curious. What's over the next hill? And And you know what? I bet you we haven't found all the answers to everything right here. And I bet you there are resources mm -hmm. beyond those hills that we haven't discovered yet. And I bet you we'll learn some stuff that will help us maybe even live better back here. And so that it's, it's a fundamental part of human nature. Uh, and it is our repeated pattern, even before history started getting written down. And what's always been the limitation has been technology. 
Could we make it across a mountain range or a deep valley? Could we make it across a body of water? Could we make it across whatever, the Atlantic Ocean? We make it all the way to Antarctica. Could we we make it to Earth orbit? And could we make it to the moon? And there's nothing new or different about that. It's just the technology is now within our lifetimes enabling us to do the next step of exploration that we've never done before. So actually, I wanted to ask you about that because I'm 50 years is a long time. Have we made such strides in technology that the whole landscape is completely different now going back to the moon? I don't think 50 years is all that long. I, I've known Katie for 30 years. So how long can 50 years be? <laughs> That's three, three-fifths of the time that I've known Katie. <laughs> <laughs> so We're it's not very long. It could have gone in such a different direction. Uh, but plus, I—I uh, I mean, I remember the moon landings. In fact, they weren't just entertaining, but they were pivotal in my life decision making. So when you say it's been a long time, it's been the snap of the fingers. In in hmm. you know, we've had civilization for what ten thousand years, and in 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 less than my lifetime, we have actually. When I was born, no one had ever flown in space. All spaceflight, all human spaceflight has happened in less than my lifetime. Mm. And, and yeah, I'm getting older, but but still, you know, it's incredibly fast going from impossible to commonplace to walking in other bodies. So it was impossible in 1950, whatever, seven, in the spring of 57 to get to space. And then Sputnik proved that you could do it. And then right. 61, Gagarin and Al Shepard proved that people could go. And then it was impossible to go to the moon. But just using slide rules and the best technology we had, we got... 12 people safely to the surface of the moon and back. But that was in 1972, as you say. There's been huge advances in so many different fields. When we launched from the moon, we were just guessing on so many things that have since become well-known fact. And I think maybe the biggest difference that we're facing right now is in the uh, the understood technologies to leave Earth. It used to right. be you had to be a trillionaire to leave Earth back in the 60s and 70s. You had to be the one of the two biggest nations on the planet just to consider even affording it because the technology was so new and complicated and therefore it was way dangerous and extremely hard and then wildly expensive. Now, I mean, uh, actors, like if you look on that little shelf behind you, the little Star Trek actors, Bill Shatner right. has flown in space, you know, where you can buy a ticket and that may be a distraction, but it's an immense indicator of just how far the technology has come, making it simpler and safer and therefore radically cheaper. And all of those things um, make the moon more accessible than it's ever been. And yet, having said all that, people say, okay, well, how come we're going back to the moon? We've already been there. And the same sort of human idea that 50 years must be really long and we must have come so far it's still a really hard thing to go to the moon and to repeat you know what we're doing to be able to stay there yeah the whole idea of going back to something i think it it uh, shows a fundamental misunderstanding of why we're going you know it's like well uh, geez i go back to work every day why do i go back i've already been there once it's because there's something worthwhile to do there and the whole purpose wasn't just to plant a flag make some footprints and leave. I mean, th- that was the initial big challenge, but trying to understand the rest of the universe, trying to understand the origin of our earth, trying to see if we're alone in the universe or not, trying to use the moon as an enormous geological resource, trying to, you know, that it's an endless list of reasons. So the one time thing, I hear it all the time, well, we've already been there, why would we go back? We don't apply that to anything on the surface of the earth. So I don't, why, you know, why that somehow makes it into the meme of the moon. I'm not sure, right. but 
you're right, Katie. I don't discount the, the still incredible complexity of it, even to put just a little thing the size of a, of a book on the, on the surface of the moon. It fails a lot. So even though we're way better at it, we sure aren't perfect at it. And getting these next missions to the moon without people and then eventually with people, it's still exquisitely hard. It's just cheaper and simpler than it used to be. Right. But I also get the impression that the, the vision has changed. So um, in the past, it was getting boots on the moon. Now we're talking about actually developing settlements on the moon. So people will be living there. And that, to me, feels like a step change in our imagination. I agree with you. There's always a big difference between imagination and then initial exploration and then becoming part of common human experience. And we've gone through that on every continent of the world and with most ideas, you know, imagination and then early exploration and then making it part of the common human experience. And we're like two out of three with the moon right now. But that third one where, you know, where it seems inconceivable, you know, or how could we possibly have people living on the moon? Well, Katie and I have both lived off the earth for half a year. That was pretty yep. inconceivable when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. And and now that's so commonplace that people are like, of course we do that. That's just normal. So the moon is just in that phase right now. I, I'm sure some of your other guests have said this, but what if we just discovered a continent on earth that was bigger than Africa? And all we'd ever done was go in a couple little places and scratch the surface and go, huh, might be some valuable stuff here. I mean, what would we do? We we would mount all sorts of exploration and then look for ways to use that as, as part of improving the quality of human life. So, so that's really what the moon is. The big obstacle has just been getting there. And as soon as you make getting there cheaper and safer, then suddenly the moon becomes much more logical as not just an end game, but actually... Uh, making that part of what people do and part of human commerce. And we're right now on the cusp of an Earth-Moon economic system. And that's mm -hmm. going to be different. So, Chris, can you just take us through the Artemis program, the missions that are coming up, how things are laid out? Sure. Our Artemis, uh, it's lovely to name things after gods of, of uh, long-dead civilizations and like Apollo or Saturn or whatever. But the, the big idea, of course, is get stuff to the moon so that we can better understand it. And then when you have enough stuff there, get people to the moon. And you can you can fire something that just goes around the moon and comes back and doesn't land, because then you don't need to build a whole lander and, and all of that extra complexity. And that's what this demonstration mission is doing, Artemis 1. And that's what the early piloted or, or peopled flights to the moon will do as well, where they won't be planning to land. First, you got to prove you can get there and safely orbit and test all the equipment. It's like we did with Apollo, with Apollo, you know, seven and eight and nine and 10 before we did Apollo 11 and landed. So we're going to go through that phase. But the eventual intent is that we have enough stuff on the surface that we're confident that when we land there, people will be able to survive. And then um, initially, people will land on the surface and just test their equipment and then leave. But once we start gaining confidence in all of our different new technologies, power generation, thermal systems, radiation protection, spacesuit design, once you start thinking, hey, all this stuff works okay, we've got the kinks out of it, then people can stay longer and longer. So that's the process we're with Artemis. But of course, there's there's you know commercial competition to Artemis as well with SpaceX and what they're building. So so it's lovely to have you know everybody likes competition, and, it, and I think it's a really healthy thing too. So we should talk about that because I, I call it competition. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it, it's nice to think about it as being competition, but it seems like there's an awful lot of collaboration there. I mean, because you talk SpaceX and well, yeah, I mean, basically it's a U.S. funded project there, Starship, right? 
Sure. So uh, Starship is uh, largely funded by SpaceX itself, but it has significant money from NASA to be a vehicle that can take equipment and eventually people to the surface of the moon, like a big, uh, you know, 16 wheeler, a great big delivery truck to the moon so that every ounce isn't precious. So as this plays out, do you see a future where you've got multiple companies or multiple service providers helping build communities on the moon rather than it just being NASA? Absolutely. That's that's how it's going to play out. Even if you just talk within the Americans part of the world, I mean, that's that's how it worked in all other industries, you know, in all other explorations. Initially, someone has to fund, you know, whether it's the, the Queen of Spain has to fund that initial exploration across the Atlantic. But it's all of the, the people that want to make some money to make a profit somehow mm-hmm. from this. But at the same time, of course, China already has things driving on the moon. They have communication satellite orbiting the moon, and their stated purpose is to put people on the moon. There are 77 space agencies in the world. 77 different countries have national space agencies, and the vast majority of them, they want to go to the moon. They want to send their stuff and their people to the moon. And if there's a bottleneck there, then opening up that bottleneck to competition is both smart and healthy, and that's going on. Is the moon big enough for everybody? Let me just explain a little for anybody who doesn't already know this, but there are places in the moon, just like on Earth, or, you know, location, 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 where the real estate is better. You want to have power and you want to have water. And so the water is in the shadow of the craters by the poles. So you need to be near the North Pole or the South Pole, but you need power. And until we can bring it like a nuclear power plant to the moon, which will take a while, you got to use solar power. Uh, and the moon only turns once every couple of weeks. So that means the night is two weeks long at the equator. But at the poles, the, mean, the moon is perfectly upright in the solar system. It's not like the earth tipped at 23 and a half degrees. So that means you always have sunlight at the pole. So if you can land somewhere that's on a hilltop, so you always got solar power, and it's not too far a drive from where the water is down in the crater, that's desirable real estate. And the interesting graphic I saw was the United States, NASA had plotted out where they want to go. And then someone had overlaid that where China had announced that they want to go. And it's almost all the same, naturally, because you know real estate's real estate. And so is the moon big enough? Well, the moon is big enough, but are the desirable right. spots unlimited? No. And that is a whole new can of worms that we have to deal with. Do you think that we could go to the moon together with China? I mean, the U.S. is already going with many other countries, signing the Artemis Accords. So there's a big international component, but China is not a part of that team at this point. So in uh, June of uh, 1985, I was holding alert for defense of North America, and the horn went off in our um, in our quick reaction facility. And I ran out and jumped into my F-18 jet and raced out over the Atlantic to intercept Soviet bombers that were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. And if you had asked me that exact question in 1985, Katie, and said, hey, do you think uh, we could be cooperating with the Soviets to uh, to like build a space station together and maybe go to the moon? I, I would have been like, well, it doesn't seem very likely right now because you know we're busily bristling and threatening each other during the Cold War. But on my first space flight, just after you got back from your space flight, I flew on an American spaceship using the Canadian arm to help build the Russian space station, Mir. And you and I had been studying Russian together. And and that was in the span of 10 years. We went from not very likely to actually 
cooperating at the highest level in space. And we have been cooperating, despite even the, the egregious nature of the war in uh, Ukraine right now, we are still cooperating 24-7 with Russia on the International Space Station. Not everything is monolithic and just you know black and white. So China's different. You know, China's got a whatever, 5,000-year civilization history. They've got their own view of the world. They have their own standards, their own culture, and it's different than other countries. But that doesn't mean it's an insurmountable obstacle that we might cooperate on spaceflight. We cooperate on lots of other things. And lots of countries in the world do cooperate with China. I mean, we just have to find a way to do it that is uh, mutually acceptable. And, And it's not an insurmountable thing. But you have to have the desire and it has to be mutually beneficial somehow. And so far, uh, especially with recent history, the United States has denied itself that opportunity for a lot of good reasons. But definitely, I wouldn't say in the future, it's always going to be this way. And I know a lot of people have looked to what we've done with Antarctica as a model of science-focused and science-based international collaboration. And the hope has been that we see a, a similar sort of model develop beyond the Earth. But of course, the flying the ointment here is commercialization. So already we're beginning to ask, what do we get out of the moon? Where is the commercial advantage? And one of the worries that might be the that might be the catalyst, Andrew. So, so that's what I think is so interesting about this, because it can go either way. And Chris, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Is that commercial impetus? Is that question of how can we commercialize the moon, something that is potentially going to bring us together or something that's potentially going to separate us? Both. Um, and Antarctica is an interesting analog in that it was impossible to get to you know, one and a half long lifetimes ago. And now thousands of people live in Antarctica and people from all sorts of different countries. And it's been functioning as a research station for, for you know, many decades. So there's a mm. lot to learn from that. And, a lot, and as you say, a lot of potential examples for the moon. But almost everybody that's involved with what's happening in Antarctica, you know, that stuff is being provided for profit. The funder is mostly governments and research organizations, but the airplanes that go down and back and the food suppliers mm-hmm. and the cooks and they, you know, it's, it's just a big commercial venture. And we sort of have this false idea of new space as if it's somehow different, as if somehow space is now commercial and it used to be, I don't know what. But, I mean, the lunar lander was built by Grumman and the space shuttle was built by Rockwell, all for profit. And space station was managed by Boeing for profit. I think as the cost comes down, then the ability for the customer to not just be governments, but to start become more and more commercial, that's going to Mm. increase until we find the first thing of value on the surface of the moon, where you're harvesting helium-3 out of the regolith of the moon or something else. It's sort of like... A lot of the early exploration by Europe of North America had to be funded by national governments. And then we discovered valuable things. And suddenly it changed, like the gold rush in California in 1849. And there was a huge inrush of businesses to support that and a whole bunch of settlement that came from it. If we can avoid destroying things and, and you know just being so money hungry that we make regrettable decisions, that would be nice. We've done that to a large degree in Antarctica, and it's part of what I'm working on also with an organization called the Open Lunar Foundation. But we're probably not going to get it perfect. But we have a really interesting historic geopolitical opportunity with the moon. And, and it's going to be really intriguing to see how it unfolds, the mixture between government and commercial and scientific. 
Do you want to just say a little bit about Open Luna? Because I think it keys into this conversation very well. Right. The purpose of the Open Lunar Foundation is just to try and solve some of the problems we're talking about. And that is, if we are going to now be able to readily get to the moon, how should we do it? Because how we settle the moon is probably going to set the precedent for how we settle Mars. How do we do it? And to me, the most laughable thing we could do would be to say, you know, we've had 10,000 years of civilization development, but let's just take like a carbon copy or an imprint or a f- whatever, a, a photograph of the imperfect geopolitical world we have. Because we got it so just, right in the past. Yeah. yeah, let's just stick that on the moon. Let's have a little America on the moon, a little China on the moon, a little Russia on the moon, and then a couple other smaller players that are at the edges of all that, because that's such a perfect world system. And so it's not just a really interesting scientific thing to be able to start permanently settling on the moon or a really interesting technological thing or just a human development thing. But it's also a really interesting geopolitical thing. And so Open Lunar works with governments all around the world. It works with the United Nations. It works with private industry. It works with the whole legal structure that's in amongst all that. It writes papers about it. It works at all the different conferences just to try and be an influential voice in the process with which we are settling the moon. And we're having a lot of really good traction too and working with a lot of different people. It's hard, but I think it's worth doing. So given all that complexity, we would love you to sort of put some of that to one side and and sort of imagine the future Um, and imagine what you would love to see the moon like in, I don't know, 2030 or so. So if we get everything right, um, what would you be really excited to see. I think fundamentally what we need is a permanent human presence on the moon, just another place that people live. So it seems for a lot of people, like, why would I ever want to do that? I've got Uber Eats delivering to my house right here. Why would I ever want to go somewhere? But there's always going to be some people that want something different, that want to go do something different, that want to live somewhere else, that don't think the middle of the comfort zone is where they want to spend their whole life. And so those people are going to settle on the moon. And our technology is allowing that. And so we're going to have to learn a lot. And when whenever we settled in new places, the first people that came to the Americas, what, 18,000 years ago, or, or the from Europe, 1,000 years ago with the Vikings, and then 500 years ago with Columbus, a lot of those early settlement efforts failed. The resupply chain was too long. We couldn't be self-sustaining. You know, what happened to Jamestown? What happened to Fortress Louisburg? We have to go through that process in any new place we go to. But uh, we'll get there. The technology will improve. There'll always be the subset of people willing to do it. And so, you know, a decade from now, it's still going to be pretty early days. But I think we should have people living for extended periods on the moon, still relying pretty heavily on resupply from Earth. But if you got water and you got power, then you can build a greenhouse, you can grow your own food. And so you can, you know, rapidly start solving some of the big obstacle problems And I think within a generation, we have a pretty good shot of just having the people that live on the moon and stay there for as long as they want. And and maybe we're not going to get to it or not, but obviously one of the big questions is, can an infant be born and develop normally under one-sixth gravity or not? Exactly. That may be a permanent factor of people living on the moon. If a child can't develop on the moon and then come back to Earth, or even can't develop normally at all, that will radically change the whole idea of how it is that we settle the moon. We don't know the answer to that question yet. 
doesn't that just blow your mind in terms of how things are changing in the nature of what it means to be human within a human society? Even asking those questions around what will it be like to have kids on the moon? What will their lives be like? Will they be radically different from being born and growing up on Earth? In all of human history, we've never had questions like this to grapple with. I always do look back you know, to the first peoples that settled Australia and, and whatever, 50,000 years ago, and, and the people that lived in parts of the world that seem not very hospitable, and yet people have lived there continuously for tens of thousands of years. We, we just get sort of used to what we think is normal, and everything else seems somehow inconceivable. And that's just uh, a cultural bias. And what I, I love is that I think it comes down to people, all the difficulties that we've been talking about, the challenges. I, I think back to some of the early days with the U.S. and Russia flying the shuttle together and building the station. And it almost always came back to individual people building real people bridges. And I think it's going to be those real people bridges. And when I think about you know on the moon in five years, I don't think you could keep the different settlements from finding each other if you wanted to. I think they will. So yeah, it's more a real reflection of how things go. Uh, we don't do it perfectly on Earth by any means. You know, we had the Cold War for how many decades? But there's also, you know, mutual rescue. And if someone's actually in distress, yeah, okay, there's there's conflict somewhere else. But we're just a bunch of people and we're going to help each other, especially if, if our little group is facing a threat that some other little group is facing. Let's join forces together. So I think that is going to be the unfolding history of the moon, is there will be always the big external geopolitical entities but they're going to be a quarter million miles away. And the moon is going to seem a long way from Washington. And well, so the station, a the long station way, was a long ways from Washington. <laughs> and a long way from Beijing. Uh, and there's, there's going to be an ever-increasing feeling of autonomy to the people that actually commit to living there. And, and so it, it'll be an interesting to see how that evolves, how the balance is. We've got the big technological problems to solve, but we're knocking those off and getting better and better at those. But all the little ones that make life interesting and allow life and art to flourish, you know, we're going to go through all that on the surface of the moon, enabled by the technology. And it's just going to be one of the next phases of human development and discovery. Pretty exciting time to be involved with it all. And I am just, I'm so excited for, you know, the Artemis you know, for that machine to work properly and its subsequent machines and for Starship and what SpaceX is doing and for the other vehicles that other countries are working on, what India is working on, you know, what China is working on, those fundamental enablers of technology that then give us choices for the future to start settling somewhere permanently uh, on a body besides Earth. And that's, to me, that's, that's really cool. It's what I dreamed about since I was a little kid. And, and here we are talking about it, being part of it and watching it unfold. It's a pretty amazing moment. Chris Hadfield, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Katie and Andrew, thank you. Thanks thanks for inviting me in. Do you think Great the thing. band could play on the moon, Chris? <laughs> Do you think we're going to be too old? I mean, I, I think you need to book so. that gig now. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I mean, you played on Space Station. I played on Space Station. And, and, and what's intriguing is NASA, despite their bureaucratic and scientific bent, they weren't against the idea of us bringing musical instruments up to the space station. They recognize that's part of being human. So I think the very first people living on the moon, they're going to bring music with them. 
but pretty soon they're going to bring musical instruments with them. And I hope there's a big breakthrough so that our band can get together and, and play under one six gravity. That'd be fun. I'm in if you're in. Way fun. <laughs> I'm in. We can't show videos of space on Mission Interplanetary. Alas, we're just a podcast. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Hey, Katie, what do you think that was? I'm going to call it the first hello. (laughs) So, I mean, I'll set the scene here. So I'm on the moon. I've been told to go explore. There's a big rock. We haven't been able to see around it because it's got kind of an overhang. And I'm peering around it. And that's the sound I hear. And this is not playing to my strengths in the astronaut department in that I actually went to space to avoid like spiders and snakes and things that said hello in that way. Okay, right. So so I've got to ask you, this thing that's saying hello, is this an intelligent thing? Is it just a, a raw animal thing? Is it a blob? It's clearly intelligent and speaking to me. <laughs> Right. It obviously recognizes you as a fellow intelligence. I, I love that. It's totally wrong, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so that it? actually it was it was equally cool, I reckon. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But that was the sound of a meteoroid slamming into Mars. So the impact was detected by a seismometer aboard NASA's InSight lander on September of 2021. And this was the first time the seismic waves from a meteor impact had been detected on another planet. That in itself is just amazing. So in the recording, you hear three distinct bloops. And I believe that is a technical word. It's certainly an appropriate word for what we heard, representing three different events. These were the meteoroid entering the atmosphere, it exploding into pieces, and then it's striking the Martian surface. And now that scientists have confirmed the distinctive seismic signatures of an impact on Mars, they expect to discover signs of more impacts buried in InSight's four years of data. What you heard was the sound of a space rock hitting Mars. I love that. To me, you know, like the more instrumentation you have, the better you can see, quote unquote. And right. uh, uh, someone gave me a photograph or an image one time of Mars where you could see the tracks of the rover on there. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're going to be different every day, right? Yep. And it's, uh, I said, you know, this is like watching TV on a different planet. It and is. So 
Now we're going to have sound with that TV show. It, it is, but but even more than that. So I mean, this this is the sort of nerdy physicist in me coming out. And, and when I was Go doing ahead. my undergraduate degree, I, I did geophysics. Um, and so I, I really get geeked out on this idea that by sending sound waves into rock, you can get a picture coming back. Um, and that's effectively what we're doing here. By recording these sounds of something hitting Mars, we get to see the inside of Mars, or at least a little bit underneath the surface. Um, and that's mind-blowingly exciting, what we can begin to extract from these. So this is, I mean, it's really interesting sound, but it's not just sound. To a physicist or a geophysicist, you can extract oodles of information out of that. And after that initial excitement, actually, I think there are all these physicists go back and they're like, okay, the models that we have, how are they right? How are they wrong? It's really, right. it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, this is really, really cool planetary science that we can hear. Let's listen to that again. That's it for this week's episode. We're so glad you joined us. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU. Send us a tweet, a comment, a question, any of the platforms. We are on them. And of course, we'd love for you to recommend us to your friends because that would be awesome. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our producer is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.